Well, please remain standing and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 555. We're going to read just the first seven verses, a shorter passage. Uh, This week we've been taking some big chunks of Ecclesiastes, but just seven verses today. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Beloved saints, this is God's word and worthy of our undivided attention. Let us give that attention to the reading of it. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Do not I'm sorry, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe, or what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask him that he would be with us as we meditate upon it and speak to us through it. Our our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you and we long to see you revealed within these scriptures. Open to us, we pray, the beauty of your word. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might behold the King of glory and give us the faith to believe and to receive all that we hear in your word. Amen. You may be seated. So I titled last week's Sermon Community, which is a total buzzword. Everyone wants community. It's, and community is a good thing, as we saw. It's something God commands, something God provides. But we have a way, don't we, of taking good things and making them sort of end-all, be-all things that take on a life of their own. And before you know it, they become buzzwords that barely resemble the original at all. So I figured I'd keep the trend going and use another buzz phrase this week and call the sermon Authentic Worship. Because isn't that really what consumes so much of the world and so much today, uh, so much of the church today, that, that quest for authenticity? It's become this sort of gold standard for all that is right and good in the world. And we know how we got there. The younger generations disillusioned by consumerism and plastic promises just want the real deal, something to finally be authentic. And that's not bad. Because what's the opposite of authentic? False, fake, imposters, frauds. The problem 
comes when we start asking annoying questions like, what makes something authentic? When it comes to people, the answer might be obvious. Somebody is authentic when they're open, honest, vulnerable, when you have no smoke screens, no false images. Other things are considered authentic when they meet a certain standard, like a precious metal, gold, or something like that, is authentic when it has the right chemical compound. Authenticity with gold is not based upon how you feel about it. But what about worship? Is it like the first or the second? What makes worship authentic? Is it how we feel about it or when it meets a certain standard? That's a tougher question, isn't it? I was raised in a church environment where authenticity in worship was measured by the worshiper. If worship accurately reflected my heart, if it wasn't forced, if it was sincere, if it was true to me, it was authentic and surely God should be pleased with it. Of course, the verse that was always used to defend this is from John 4, right? God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And and that was taken, that was promoted to teach that what really matters in worship is sincerity. Spirit and truth was believed to mean sincerity. That, That really what mattered was not some sort of external ritualism or, or things like that, not following some set standard, but that it was true to my heart and that God would never ask for anything more. Now, it doesn't take long to see the potential problems with that because in context in John 4, Jesus says things are changing and what matters is that we worship in spirit and truth. And and if you think spirit and truth means sincerity, what, what Jesus is saying is something like, you know what? God used to just love external formalism, but now, since that didn't work, we're going to try something new and see if sincerity works and see how that goes. But there's a problem. The Old Testament is full of rebukes about insincere worship. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the Old Testament. Long before Jesus ever walked this earth, God has always demanded sincerity in worship. That is not new in John 4. But there's a greater problem. What happens to worship when it begins and ends with how people feel? What happens to our view of God What happens to our view of ourselves? You see, the God I had come to know in that context, where where worship was based upon me, that God was nice to a fault, easygoing, and a bit insecure. He was considered loving, but that love gradually came to be defined 
as always willing to do what I wanted him to do, not necessarily what I needed him to do. This, I was told, was why God was worthy of worship, because he recognized how valuable I was. Who was I really worshiping? And because of that, I was completely unprepared to meet the God I would discover in the scriptures. In college, I began reading the forgotten passages, you know, the flyover books of the Bible. And I was shocked. I was stunned to hear that God would tell Moses, you may not enter the promised land because you did not treat me as holy. Moses! Little did I know that things were about to get a lot worse because I kept reading. I read that Uzzah was struck dead for reaching out to steady the Ark of the Covenant when it was uh, rocked, when an oxen tripped. Because God had said, do not touch the ark. I read about Nadab and Abihu, who God struck dead for, for offering unauthorized fire in worship. I read about Korah, who, who got in Moses and Aaron's face and said, you think you're the only ones who can lead in worship? I'll do that. And fire from heaven came down and consumed him. I read that Moses had to take off his shoes when he entered into God's presence because the ground was holy and different and was disrespectful to do anything else. I read that the priests of Israel were to camp around the tabernacle to protect not just the tabernacle, but to protect the people lest they enter the tabernacle in an unworthy manner and die. I read about Ananias and Sapphira who lied about their offerings and dropped dead. And then I foolishly read the book of Job and I got to the end and I read this relentless rebuke where God told Job how foolish and arrogant he was. And I thought, Job? He's the gold standard. He's what all of us wish we could be. And in a relentless rebuke against him, because he would dare to sincerely and authentically voice his frustrations and complaints against God. And I had no categories to understand these passages. I didn't know what to do, I was totally unprepared to meet that God. But here's the problem. I believed, I knew that the Bible was his word. I knew that those passages in the scriptures weren't the problem. I was. And it started with this, I misunderstood worship. And if you misunderstand worship, you will misunderstand God because worship is about God. He is what makes worship authentic or not. He is the standard, not us. And that's what our passage is about. If only I had read Ecclesiastes 5, if only I had understood its message, maybe I could have saved myself a lot of heartache.
as we look at these seven verses, I'm going to simply try to make one point, and it's this. Making sense of the world begins with quietly worshiping the God of heaven. If you want to rightly see the world, rightly see yourself, it begins with quietly learning to worship the God of heaven. I, I, I hope uh, that will make sense um, after a short time in this passage this morning. It, our passage does two things. It, it tells us both what we attempt to foolishly offer to God in worship and also what God actually demands what actually pleases him. So we want to take those in turn. Let's, let's just get the hard stuff out of the way. Let's talk about what we foolishly try to pass off as worship. The first thing Solomon addresses is that temptation to think that we have something to offer God as a bargaining chip. That language in verse 1, it is better to listen than to offer a sacrifice. This language is identical. It's, it's hard to see in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew, the original, it's, uh, it's the identical words that Samuel says to King Saul when God tells Saul that he will no longer be king over Israel. Remember, to, listen, to hear is obey, uh, to better than sacrifice, right? Saul had disobeyed God. God had said, you go in, destroy everything, don't keep anything. This isn't one of those places where you get to keep uh, the, the spoils, well, what king wants to tell his people that? So they went in and they kept a bunch of things. But Saul had this great idea. Well, we'll just offer extra sacrifices to God and make him happy. As if God needed animals. As if God could be bribed. Such sacrifices were not an act of worship. They were an attempt to corrupt and manipulate the God of heaven. They were an attack on who he is. They were an affront to God and all that is holy. In verses 2 and 7, Solomon warns against the temptation to think that God will be impressed with our many words. I think we know what's going on here. We all know the salesman mentality that just thinks, if I can just talk long enough and say enough, I can find something that will convince God of how important this is. Or we think that God is lonely and will do anything for us if we're just willing to spend some time with Him in prayer. How many of us have heard sermons on the length of prayer that you must pray for hours without really reflecting on the posture or the content of those prayers? As if God was more interested in quantity than quality. Jesus said the exact opposite. He said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He wasn't saying anything new. Ecclesiastes said that years before. Where words increase, it says there's emptiness. That's not what constitutes, constitutes true worship. Verses 3 and 7 talk about dreams. People often connect dreams and visions with what they believe to be authentic spirituality. And, and the allure of dreams and visions 
is that those who have them believe that they have had unmediated access to God. I don't need the Bible. I don't need preachers. I don't need other Christians in my lives. I'm special. And so dreams become unchallengeable. But I had a vision. I had a dream. You Don't throw God's word at me. I had a dream. Ecclesiastes eviscerates such notions. Because the problem with dreams are not that, that they're not reality. And of course, that's why they're so appealing. But God is the ultimate reality. And acknowledging Him is the ultimate realism. The final act of false worship that Solomon confronts is empty vows. Verses 4 and 5. And these are similar to... Uh, sacrifices in verses 2 and 7. Empty vows are attempts to bribe or persuade God, not through uh, animal sacrifices or something like that, but by saying something along these lines. God, I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want. I'll go to church more. I'll be a better person I'll finally give up that nasty habit. All I ask for in return is, and you fill in the blank. But of course, we all know what happens. If things get better, we find some other explanation. And so we believe we're off the hook. Or worse, we simply forget. And our vows, like so many other broken promises, lie there in our junk drawer of careless words forgotten, ignored. Now, before we move on and and talk about what God does require of us, you might be scratching your head thinking, how does this fit into Ecclesiastes? How did we get from a discussion last week of envy and relationships to a discussion of worship this week? And come to think of it, how does all this fit in with what we heard in the first three chapters? But I think if we put the pieces together, they make sense. Remember how chapter one opened with a lament over unmet expectations? That Solomon confessed that, that he, like all other humans, people, us, have this quest for immortality by doing something new and different and through our accomplishments find meaning and satisfaction. We all seek the eternal, but we want to accomplish on our own by doing something amazing and noteworthy that will bring us glory, recognition, and a legacy. And so from there into chapter 2, he confessed that his real desire was ultimately to replace God and to gain control over creation so that he would not be subject to the trials and the frustrations that are common to mankind. He wanted to create his own reality. Not just his own eternity, but his own reality. 
And so chapter 3 is that statement of, of frustration. This is the problem of life, is there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to rejoice and a time to weep. And, and he was frustrated that life couldn't just be one big party, but that he had to be subject to powers and seasons that were outside his control. And so last week we saw him confess that what really drives all of this is envy, pride, a desire to be loved and adored and served by others to be at the center of the universe, to be God. What he's doing at the beginning of chapter 5 is addressing the reality of how all of those things that he's already confessed are just idolatry. And that idolatry can so quickly and easily follow us into worship. We can easily enter into God's house with an agenda. We come thinking that we are there to pursue our agenda, our reality. That if we can't beat God, we can at least manipulate Him. And if we can just figure out how to turn the right key, we don't have to endure the seasons of life. Life can just be one big party. We can have everything we wanted and desired. That's why we're where we are in this book. And so to this, he offers a few simple correctives. And the first is simply this. When you enter into God's house, when you enter into worship, guard your steps. And he quickly gives the reason in verse 2. Because you have come to meet with the God of heaven. You are not his equal in any way. You have nothing that he needs. You have no bargaining chips. And what's more is you're guilty of breaking his commands. And he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He is perfectly just. He is infinitely righteous. Entering into his presence is no small matter. The reason we go into worship carelessly is because we forget who God is. We think he's weak and we think he can be manipulated. And even if we do this in ignorance, with the best of intentions, we're not off the hook. Look at verse 1. It acknowledges that, that many who do this don't know that they are offering the sacrifices of fools. But that doesn't make it okay. Ignorance is not an excuse. Because authentic worship isn't measured by your sincerity or your intentions. It's measured by the God we worship. It's measured by what he commands. And so Solomon gives us a few of the basics. Verse 1, listen more than you speak. You are more in need of God's words than he is in need of yours. Learn to listen thoughtfully and then respond. Verses 4 and 5. Don't make vows lightly because God calls all debts. Don't believe me? 
Go home and read Judges chapter 11. Ask Jephthah, who in the midst of battle vowed, Lord, if you would give me this battle, I will offer to you as a burnt offering whatever comes through my door first when I come home. Imagine how he felt when walking home, his daughter came through that front door to greet him. We have got to learn to count the costs before we open our mouths and make vows. How many of us today make marriage vows before God, to God, with no intention of keeping them? All of Solomon's instructions could be summed up by acknowledging that authentic worship is absolute and total surrender to God. Anything short of that is not true worship. Because true worship is an offering of self. We bring our gifts and we lay them on the altar and the Lord says, that's interesting, how about you hop on? It's a surrender of our rights, our possessions, our plans, our hopes, our dreams. True worship places everything on the altar and it says to God, it is yours to do with as you would. The reality is, if we were to be authentic and honest, is that authentic worship is not something we long for as we claim to. The truth is authentic worship terrifies us. We want to replace it with idolatry of self and call it authentic because it comes from inside of us. But here's the thing. Authentic worship puts what's inside of us to death. But if that's the standard... What hope is there? Who can meet such requirements? Who can truly say they have surrendered everything? Who can sit there and say, well, if that's what authentic worship is, good, because that's what I do every day. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who when he came to this world, said that his food was to do the will of the Father. That was his sustenance. That was his life. And what he meant is that he did not come to write his own script. Before he came into this world, he made vows to the Father that he would offer his own life in the place of his people and suffer all that they deserved for their rebellion and their sin. Over and over he makes it clear that he had a job to do. He came for a reason. That's why he came. Never did he say, death on the cross? (laughs) That's not really me. I'm more of a paint a picture kind of guy. I'll offer to my father some really nice oil painting on a canvas. That would be more authentic me. He said, this is what the Father requires and this is what I will do. 
And so when the hour came to pay his debt, to pay his vows, he did not tell Jesus, I'm sorry, tell Judas, what you do, do slowly. (laughs) He said, what you do, do quickly. Remember Ecclesiastes, pay your vows quickly. He obeyed Ecclesiastes 5.5. And none of that robbed his worship of its sincerity, of its authenticity. It established it to be true and authentic and genuine. It was based upon the fact that he was on earth and his father was in heaven. And so his prayer, his authentic, true prayer of glory to the father was, not my will, but your will be done. True worship Genuine worship, authentic worship, does not avoid surrender. It requires it. And surrender is often best expressed in silence because in our words we try to control, we try to manipulate. And so it's no surprise that as Jesus approached the cross, he closed his mouth and he stood silent before his accusers. Had his goal been to get his own way, he could have talked circles around Pilate and walked out the front door to freedom. But that would have reflected his desires. It would have been true to what he wanted in that moment, but it would not have been worship to the Father. And at the very core of who he was, was that desire, that need to honor his Father in heaven. My food is to do the will of my Father. And so he remains silent. And in that silence, we see God's power and his justice and his holiness married perfectly to his love. And that's the thing. We all talk about God's love. We want to know God's love, but you can't really understand His love if you don't understand how perfectly holy He is. When we talk only about God's love and not about His absolute holiness, we rob His love of its depth. Because we can only understand His love when we understand what that love saves us from. We can only understand his love when we understand what we deserve. We can only understand his love when we realize that he was under no obligation to suffer in our place, but he did so voluntarily. And when we understand all of that, it's then that we can now make sense out of what happened to Uzzah and Moses and Nadab, and Abihu, and Korah, and Ananias, and Sapphira. Because they all got what we deserve. Because we are just as guilty as each of them. They were meant to mirror to us what we deserve, and what we would deserve, and receive without God's mercy and His grace. They're meant to teach us just how great God's mercy and His grace are. 
And they show us a glimpse of what Jesus actually suffered for us on the cross. And they teach us to learn from Job that when we enter into the presence of the holy, to place our hands over our mouths and to stand in awe of the God of heaven. So what does authentic worship look like in modern America? For starters, it begins by acknowledging that something is not worthy simply because it comes out of us. There are lots of things that come out of me that aren't worthy of anything. If something was worthy because it rightly reflected my heart and my soul, then Jesus didn't need to come and die. If at the very core of who I am is worthy of God, I don't need a Savior. There's no need for a sacrifice. Jesus died because of what's in me. But here's the thing. His death offers the foundation for your worship. You can enter into God's presence not because you are worthy, but because He is and because He has paid your debt. Sincerity matters. It always has. Don't fall into the dichotomy of sincerity or obedience. That is Satan's lie. True sincerity is found in recognizing your need for Jesus and taking refuge in Him. And it's only then that you can surrender your pride, your agenda, your manipulation. It's only then that you can find joy in surrendering yourself and lay yourself on the altar of God and say, You're all I need. Do with me and my life as you will. And when you do that, your greatest desire will be to do the will of your Father who is in heaven. It will become your food, as Jesus says it was his food. You will want to do what honors him. And you will learn to fear him and not take him lightly. And in that, you will find peace. Because it's then that you will see the world as it really is. Not as it is in your dreams, but as it really is. Making sense out of your world begins with quietly submitting to God in worship. Is it any wonder then that part of worship entails eating? The Lord's Supper before us reminds us of the vows Jesus made and that his food was to do the will of his Father. That he vowed to die in our place to fix what was wrong so that we might enter in to the house of God. The Lord's Supper, because of that, shows us the weightiness of our sin and the seriousness with which God takes it. And it shows us the depth of his love toward us that he was willing to suffer death in our place. 
And it reminds us that Jesus called us to offer up our lives as our spiritual service of worship. It reminds us that our food is now to do the will of the Father. In other words, the Lord's Supper every week calls us to authentic worship. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward this morning that we might receive this as God's food to us and a reminder of what our food truly is. And please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we long for authentic worship, to know you, to honor you, and to surrender to you in a way that pleases you. But we confess that we're filled with pride. We have our own agendas, our overinflated senses of self. Teach us to speak less and to listen more. Help us to turn from our dreams to your word. Help us to understand that the only sacrifice that really matters is our whole lives. And we long for the day when all selfishness, all manipulation is removed far from us. And we worship you for all eternity. Authentically. Amen.